Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum is produced by PolicyForum.net and our home base is Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school from Climate to health policy, Australia and countries all over the world continue to need strong leadership. And if you're keen to become an expert in public policy and play a key role in decision making, then don't hesitate to come and study with us. We've got a wide range of short courses and postgraduate degrees available to you. Go check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, COVID-19 has left no parts of our lives untouched. For many in Australia and beyond, that has meant, sadly, the loss of jobs as companies have reduced staff or closed. In Australia, there are nearly one million people unemployed and a great many more than that in precarious work. But even those left in work are experiencing limitations. According to the International Labour Organization, in September, 94% of workers were living in countries with some sort of workplace closures in place, resulting in the loss of income and working hours. And with organizations facing unprecedented hurdles to do business as usual, they've had to find new ways to accommodate customers and their workers. One example of this, of course, is the millions of us who've been forced into remote working by the virus. That's caused challenges, including the lack of social interactions, a reliance on a creaking broadband network and increased distractions, but it's also allowed for more flexible work environments. While predicting the future is always difficult, there are trends emerging around the future of work coming out of the COVID-19 crisis. 
Deloitte's 2020 Human Capital Trends Report identified a sense of belonging as one of the most critical factors that drive performance, with 93% of survey respondents saying it was important to them to feel respected and treated fairly. According to the report, the pandemic has also brought the impact of physical, mental and financial security concerns to the forefront, with some people unable to tune out of work stress whilst working from home, or feeling anxious about the actual safety of the office environment that they have to return to. The report recommends greater investment in employee well-being and giving people greater flexibility to choose when and where they want to work. So today we want to pick apart some of these views and ask the question, what might the world of work look like after the crisis passes and how can policymakers support businesses and individuals in adjusting to that and I've got a stellar cast of uh, experts to join me to shed light on this question and many more for us today. Uh, Joining us remotely is Dr Ben Hamer, he is the Director of and Future of Work Lead at PwC Australia, he's also an Adjunct Fellow at Swinburne University and an ANU alumni. Hello Ben, how are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Also joining us remotely is Dr. Karis Chan. Karis is a lecturer of organizational psychology at Griffith University, and she's an early career fellow at the Work and Family Researchers Network. Hello, Karis. Hi. It's good to be here. And it's a welcome back to Dr. Andrew Lee, MP. Andrew is, of course, the member for FENA here in the ACT. He's the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities. He's a former professor of economics here at the ANU, and he's the host of the Good Life podcast. Hello, Andrew. How are you? G'day, Martin. Great to be back on campus. Well, it's lovely to have you back, and it's lovely to have you all join us for the podcast today. Now, of course, COVID-19 has forced us to reimagine the way many of us work, from academia to government to the private sector. We've all had to adapt. So I've got a question for all of you. Perhaps I'll start with you, Andrew. In your experience of this crazy year, what have been the biggest changes you've seen in in your workplace? It's the massive shift to teleworking. Uh, you know, Martin, we we used to joke that there were three problems with working from home, the bed, the fridge and the television. Uh, and it used to be that about 5% of working hours in the United States were done from home. Uh, now it looks like that might go to 20% and stay, stay there in perpetuity. Uh, and indeed, uh, one recent study found that two-thirds of American GDP was produced from home, which I would have just found unbelievable if you'd told two me a Two-thirds of yeah, GDP. Yeah, exactly. And it's also um, at a time when American workers say they're less stressed. They're about 10% less stressed than they were before the crisis. So one of the lasting impacts of COVID may be uh, that for white-collar workplaces, uh, they, the norm is just to have fewer desks than employees and to have people uh, splitting their time between work and home, perhaps not entirely teleworking, but doing, say, three days a week in the office and working Monday and Friday from home. Uh, and that's got radical implications for how we manage our firms, uh, for the impact on the massive low sk- lower-skill labour force that supports an, an urban commuting economy, uh, and also on uh, on how we uh, help families uh, juggle, juggle work and kids, because uh, working from home looks a whole lot more attractive when you're not trying to look after small kids at the same time. Karis, what about you? What sort of changes have you seen in your workplace? Well, as an academic in a university, I think 
One thing that for us was a big change was the lack of face-to-face -face interaction with our students, as well as, as our colleagues, who you know, you know, when you teach and when you discuss research ideas, um, a lot of this face-to-face -face interaction would actually be useful because sometimes your gestures or some of your ideas might come out um, from a sort of like, you know, everyone is here on campus uh, to so just drum out some of the ideas um, and also you know, plan for future research projects. But at the same time, we also see a, a sort of loss of sense of time and not just on uh, for us academics but also for students because uh, my students have actually feedback that um, their study days are slightly longer and this is also proven by a study uh, on Microsoft employees that the average workday has actually increased by about 40 to 50 minutes per day while employees were transitioning from remote uh, from the office to remote working and at the same time uh, and they, they actually lost track of like, you know, the hourly lunch time and they actually have a lot more autonomy uh, when it comes to um, all this sort of timelines and planning their days. That's very interesting. So that increase in the working day, is that caused by people having to work harder because of those challenges of working from home? Or does it come down to the fact that they've got a bit more freedom as to how they arrange their day? So they might break it up with going off and doing some shopping or doing some gardening or something during the day. Well, I mean, just based on my anecdotal evidence, talking to some colleagues with children and without children, for working parents, a lot of them have had to deal with homeschooling or homeschool instruction. And so naturally, uh, some portion of their day is dedicated to that. But for lots of colleagues without children, I think it's the sort of like, you know, living arrangement where they actually build in more exercise time and more micro breaks throughout the day. And so they have seen the length of the workday increase, but not necessarily in terms of productivity. It has not decreased, but maybe maintain the same, or for some of them has also increased, um, especially when they do not have dependents to look after. Yeah, very interesting indeed. What about you, Ben? What's been your experience? How, what, what kind of changes have you seen in, in your working environment? Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's something um, that's been a really interesting one to track because working in the future of workspace and talking to public and private sector clients about this for, for some time, there was a lot of interest in the conversation around the future of work and new ways of working, but we weren't necessarily seeing um, the transformation to the extent that we otherwise expected or would have liked. And then um, all of a sudden, it's not the robots coming to take our jobs. It's this microscopic invader that's come through to really accelerate um, the future of work agenda. And we saw the world's largest remote working experiment happening en masse. Um, so for us at PwC, it was absolutely that shift to uh, remote working and the blurring of geographical boundaries as well. So it wasn't like for consulting work, for example, you had to be co-located in the same city, but how do you start bringing in um, the right capability irrespective of where those people sit geographically within the firm? So that's something that's kind of been a bit of a shift for us. Um, I think that Another thing that's been quite interesting um, with some of the clients that we work with and looking at the social rhetoric has also been a, a real reflection and a re-evaluation on the role of essential workers. So, for example, those who work in the healthcare system, teachers, etc., you now have parents who have a greater appreciation of 
um, of, of sort of what teachers do and the hours they put in and the effort that's involved. You, we all as a society have a greater appreciation for healthcare workers. So I think there's some industry nuances around all of that. Um, and I mean, if I look at my own personal experience within the pandemic, I started and finished a uh, a work opportunity that was reporting through to Switzerland. And so I met and worked with a team for the entirety of that um, project where I never actually met them face to face, but still was able to develop authentic connections with them. So, um, I mean, that to me is a, a 2020 experience in a nutshell. Yeah, that remote work experience has has been has been something that many people have had to adjust to according to a survey from the University of Sydney during the pandemic the number of work from home days doubled for managers and almost tripled for employees in sort of sales and clerical administration work Ben is that remote work experiment that you talked about there here to stay I think that it's here to stay to to an extent so um, if I think about at PwC, we actually ran um, what we called a future of work jam. We're very much like every other organisation thinking about um, what the future model looks like for our people. And what we found was that um, staff didn't want to go back to the way things were, where it was in the office and you might occasionally have a work from home day here and there, nor did they actually want to do 100% working from home in future. There's some sort of hybrid model in the middle um, and noting that it has to be flexible based on what different people want. And that's going to be really core to an employee value proposition moving forward. So I think this hybrid model of potentially, say, two or three days in the office per week uh, and the remaining at home or either at a co-working space and looking at standing up community hubs, I think there's going to be a real um, disruptive shift towards what the new workplace model actually looks like. And I think there's going to be a jurisdictionally specific overlay within all of this. So if I think about Perth and Canberra, you guys, particularly in Canberra as well, are having somewhat of a different experience because um, lower cases of COVID and a shorter lockdown period, plus you have a lot of people who drive to work um, and have shorter commutes versus in Sydney, where realistically, a lot of people can go back to the office, but we're still seeing occupancy sitting at around 20% um, because it's a longer commute. It's more of an effort, a lot more people on mass catching public transport, and people just much prefer working from home in that sense. Um, and then obviously, you've got Melbourne having an entirely different experience as well. So um, I think it'll be an interesting one to watch over the next couple of months and how it unfolds. Andrew, what's your take on this? Oh, I think Ben's totally right about the hybrid model. And uh... It's going to put a big uh, challenge on on managerial quality. Uh, bad managers uh, look at people's inputs and uh, play favourites. Good managers look at people's outputs and treat everyone equally. And uh, we're going to discover, uh, particularly in a world of telework, uh, who's got the good managers and who doesn't have the managerial quality to allow a shift to, uh, to remote work. Uh, the other thing I think we're going to see is the demise of the open plan office. Uh, and this is, for me, one of the silver linings of the crisis. Uh, we've always known from hard research uh, that open plan workers in open plan offices are more stressed, they're more dissatisfied, they're more resentful, uh, they experience higher levels of noise, more interruptions, less motivated, less creative, they're more likely to take sick leave. So the move to open plan offices has always been more about corporate symbolism than productivity, uh, yet the open plan office uh, had this uh, 
little problem that uh, it was uh, particularly uh, prone to spreading uh, spreading diseases. Uh, and I think it's that feature which is going to uh, lead to petitions going back up uh, and we'll get a productivity boost from that uh, as firms were move towards the uh, mode of office organisation that, that we know to be more productive. If we see the end of the hot desking phenomenon, that would certainly be a silver lining to the crisis, in my opinion. Yes, I think uh, we'll, we'll imagine we'll imagine hot desking in the way in which we'll talk about uh, memes going viral. You know, it just it doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't sound quite so nice as it used to in 2019. And just staying with you for a second, what are some of the implications of all this remote working for how government and business function? Yeah, it's massive. I mean, this, of course, government is uh, is employer, uh, and increasingly we're seeing in the public service some of these same sorts of things that uh, Karis and Ben have talked about in the private sector, uh, where organisations have looked to try and move to uh, to hybrid models, recognising that uh, in fact it can make sense to allow people to uh, to have a combination of work in the office and work from home. Uh, it's also got implications, though, for the technology we have, and I think the uh, it would have been great if we had had fibre to the premises broadband built already. Uh, uh, now the government is trying to retrofit it uh, at a time in which people need high quality broadband uh, more than they ever, they ever have before. Uh, and I think additionally, it's going to put a huge challenge to stress on the social fabric. You know, in some sense, most of our conversation so far has been about white collar workers. Uh, we know that two fifths of the population can telework, uh, but uh, that, that fraction is only one fifth among low wage employees. Uh, if you're a cleaner, a checkout worker, uh, you can't readily telework. If you work in agriculture or hospitality, you can't telework. Uh, And for those workers, they'll be suffering the triple whammy uh, of not being able to telework, of seeing increased automation place stronger pressures on their jobs, and seeing de-urbanisation take away many of those uh, service sector jobs, whether they're in transport, building services, or secretarial support. Indeed. Karis, some of your work looks at work-related stress and burnouts. How does that play out in a world where many people are working from home or feel anxious about returning to an office environment? So in terms of daily stress, we actually saw that in the first three months of the transition from a traditional office environment to remote working, there was a slight increase. But after that three months, actually, people got used to the rhythm of working from home. And so actually, their stress levels went back to pre-COVID levels. And at the same time, we also see a slight increase in productivity, uh, mainly because there is a greater freedom to work whenever you are more productive. And at the same time, um, a lot of managers in general, I mean, just speaking to some people that I've interviewed, uh, employees in um, social work, as well as um, consultants, um, their managers were generally um, giving them a lot of autonomy and they didn't do the sort of um, obsessive monitoring uh, that you've read in some of the newspaper articles out there. Um, in terms of burnout, I guess it will de- depend a lot on the person's uh, personality uh, as well as how they deal with boundaries or uh, in terms of the messiness or the boundarylessness uh, that remote working has brought about. So generally speaking, a majority of the people out there are actually segmentators in the sense that they like to separate their work and life. Uh, We do have 
people who like to integrate, but they tend to be a minority. And so I, I guess earlier on, people actually grappled with uh, this boundarylessness. But after that, you know, as with all life crisis or some of the challenges that we encounter in our lives, they actually got used to it. People who like to integrate their life, so basically like home-based entrepreneurs or people who have been working remotely for a long time, obviously that wouldn't have affected them a lot uh, in terms of daily stress. Ben, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, so just hearing Karis talking about boundaries, one of the things that it's um, flagged for me and something that we're hearing a lot from our clients at the moment is very much around the blurred lines between work and home and what's the role and obligation of the employer within all of this. So things that were otherwise and previously seen as quite personal um, are now sort of creeping into, well, what's the the redefined role of the manager? Um, I mean, we know that there are increased rates of feelings of isolation and loneliness and online course providers have seen a spike in demand for these skills. Um, and organisations correspondingly have this sort of emphasis now on, um, on wellbeing. I think there's an interesting piece to play out here on what's the role of AI in all of this. And, and previously we've seen and heard a lot of controversy around surveillance and monitoring, but where an organisation can't actually physically see um, how someone is coping um, and you can have those uh, people who are... Um, I don't know the correct term for it, but silently keeping in silence around how they're feeling. Um, you know, to what extent can you actually use AI and monitoring in an ethical and constructive way to try and identify and proactively provide levels of support for employees? So I think that's a, a really interesting one. And then obviously there's more of a industrial or work health and safety perspective that comes into play within all of this as well. Um, we've seen cases that are being uh, taken to uh, governing bodies and regulators around um, how someone might have spilled a cup of tea on themselves and the home is classified as a workplace and therefore they've been given a workers' comp payout as a result of it. Um, that sort of stuff is going to get more complex and more frequent moving forwards and something to, to kind of get on top of now. Mm, lots of interesting questions there. Andrew, you recently published a new book. It's called Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook, and it deals with community organisations and initiatives that were particularly successful in bringing people together. We're talking about working from home here, but humans are inherently social creatures. So what impact will the changes to our working environment have on our social connections? It's interesting, Martin. There was initially a strong surge and sense of solidarity among Australians. Uh, the early surveys, uh, such as that conducted by the ABC, identified that as we went into March and April, people were uh, more stressed, more worried, more fearful, but also had a stronger sense of solidarity. How we can maintain that sense of solidarity as the lockdown continues, I think, remains an, an open question. I am concerned that for many organisations that have typically operated on a face-to-face -face basis, uh, that they will struggle to get going again after the crisis. So uh, if you're a rotary group, you're, you're used maybe to, to not having your meetings in January. Uh, and so therefore, you could, you could go a few months without a meeting, without damaging the organisation. 
But can you go 24 months without a meeting? Uh, I'm not so sure. I think people then begin to uh, drop out of the organisation. Uh, and so that's that's going to be a big uh, challenge for us as we look to, uh, to rebuild community. Um, I've really admired uh, an organisation like Craig Foster's Play for Lives, which asked sports people to sub in and uh, step up as, as volunteers in their local, local community. Uh, that's one of the ways in which uh, people are, are pushing back against this trend. Uh, but this is a real fork in the road for, uh, for community. Is there anything that government or policymakers can do to encourage people to keep engaging with those society groups, those community groups, so that we do come out of this crisis with those, those, those systems, it's still in place? Better support for charities. Uh, charities are asking for fixing fundraising. They're suggesting uh, a new uh, programs to encourage donations to push back against the uh, significant fall in, do- in donations. Uh, they want better support for uh, their volunteer workforces, and we know that about two thirds of volunteers had to cut back this year. Uh, and also, they uh, they just want a, a federal government which is going to work with them uh, rather than uh, se- seeking to always cast them as being the enemy. Uh, so. I think there's an awful lot we can do in the community sector uh, from a government standpoint, uh, as well as encouraging those social entrepreneurs uh, to uh, to create new networks that do what Nick Terrell and I describe in Reconnected as being cyber connecting, uh, using technology to encourage face-to-face interactions rather than supplant them. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, but I think this is probably a good time for a quick break. So join us for more after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I am still here with Andrew Lee, Karis Chan and Ben Hamer. Just before the break, we were talking about the impact of working from home on us as social beings. But those aren't just personal payoffs. Social interactions at work can be seeds for collaboration and innovation. Ben, you've written recently about what the disappearance of what you refer to as water cooler conversation means for business innovation. Can you tell us a little about innovation in this climate and how organisations that might be moving to remote working in the longer term can manage the loss of ideas that get generated around the coolers and elsewhere? Yeah, and I find the the water cooler term 
Um, still quite funny because I have to say in the last few workplaces I've been at, there's no such thing as a water cooler anymore. We've got those fun <laughs> taps, but we still talk about it. Um, but really it's around those serendipitous um, encounters that spark the creativity and, and collaboration. Some of the things that we've seen in the research around ways of working in COVID-19 are that meetings are more formal in nature um, because to organise a virtual collaboration, you need to have it clearly structured. Um, people are trying to be more efficient because everyone has this Zoom fatigue. Um, and so it, it's sort of minimising the informal collaboration pieces. There was a bit from Atlassian, uh, some research they released that said that 40% of employees feel like social interactions have worsened. Um, while at the same time, we ran some stuff at PwC and over over 50% of people said they believed that the culture had actually improved within COVID-19. So I think there are some interesting nuances around the quality of social connections. But then when we translate that into what does that mean for innovation, um, we have people who are attending more meetings, they're spending less time talking uh, informally, and 28% of people say that there are fewer or worse collaboration opportunities. So a lot of what this is telling us is that it's not providing the environment that we would traditionally or otherwise expect to incubate and drive innovation. So what do we do about it? There are a couple of things here. I think let's not underestimate the value of still getting people in a room um, and how do you go about encouraging or designing work days to encourage collaboration uh, in person and then what's the other work that sits outside of that that can be done remotely, so where there is the flexibility to make those choices. I think from a leader's perspective, it's really about how do you provide the space for people to be able to um collaborate informally as well so whether or not it's you know putting in a five minute buffer at the start of meetings just to have that bit of chit chat um, making sure that you're leveraging the technology that's available to you as well um, so how do you do um, things like the google suite of products where you can both be working on a word document at the same time or we use mural as a way in which you can do sort of virtual whiteboarding so still trying to um, mirror some of those activities, but in a way that's a little bit more engaging than just having six people on a call talking at each other for half an hour, um, I think is pretty important. Now, you mentioned leadership there, and Andrew, you previously talked about, you know, you're, this, we'll see who the good managers are and who, and who the poor managers are. But how do you go about effectively managing teams when they're working remotely and ensuring that people are feeling supported and that work is on the right track? I feel as though I'm probably the uh, third best qualified person on this uh, conversation to answer that question, Martin, but let me give a crack and then the others can uh, can come in with great more expertise. Uh, I'm, I think it's about improving the quality of management training. I, I do worry uh, if you compare management textbooks of this generation to management textbooks of last generation, um, there's, there's not very much in common. Whereas if you pick up a, a chemistry or a physics textbook, an economics textbook, a philosophy textbook, there's a lot more in common from generation to generation. So management training, I think, has been a little bit too faddish. Uh, and that means that, uh, that people uh, don't have consistent uh, managerial approaches, even within the same firm. So I was chatting to the, the head of one of the big banks in Australia, uh, and he was saying that they've actually set about doing their own management training approach because they found that too many of their managers just 
thought about the job quite differently and they wanted to have one standard approach to management uh, within the bank. Uh, and if you don't have that, uh, that that clear philosophy, then uh, you get this problem The Economist magazine talked about recently that uh, the emotion that's most likely to lure workers back to the office is paranoia. Uh, people will just be concerned that uh, if they're not physically present, they won't continue to uh, to, to move up the, the career ladder. Uh, and that's going to be particularly tough, I think, for women who bear the brunt of of caring responsibilities. Uh, and I know Karis has done some quite interesting research showing that the impact on mental well-being has, has been much worse for mothers than fathers during the crisis. Yes, that's exactly right. So I actually did a study on the work-home experiences of um, working parents in Singapore during the COVID-19 lockdown. I mean, Singapore also had the same sort of uh, experience as Melbourne did, but they obviously lifted the lockdown about uh, to, uh, one month ago. And, you, you know, women have the natural tendency to also take up more of the household chores and child-rearing responsibilities. And so the worst affected were actually uh, working mothers from low to middle income families. Um, that was from Singapore, but I actually expect that the same trend would be observed in Australia. And the other thing about leadership that I wanted to add was um, I've actually seen a variation in a sort of managerial behaviors. Some managers are actually very comfortable to talk about work-home experiences. So they will open conversations and be very open about how they're struggling at home as well. But as usual, you might also have some straight-faced managers who are just about work. And in this time and in this climate, a lot of people actually prefer that sort of informal uh, chit-chats that you might have uh, with employees because they would feel that they are cared for and their employers are providing not just instrumental but emotional support. Um, so as opposed to so some managers who might be overachieving and very aggressive but who avoid the home topic altogether, uh, they are not very popular uh, just based on my conversations with employees out there. Yeah, so I think we're, we're talking about gender, but I think there's a, a broader and more complex thing that's at force here when we're talking about working from home and um, people's ability to, to do that effectively. And so that same Atlassian research that I spoke about earlier, they call out um, three uh, types of complexity that, that contribute to someone's effectiveness at, when it comes to working from home. So one is around household complexity, which includes things like caring commitments, but it also looks at things like um, if you're a graduate and you live in a share house with four other people and you don't have a formal workspace, um, there's role complexity, which is the extent to which your role can legitimately be done remotely based on the tasks that you have. And then there's network complexity as well, which goes into the quality of the relationships you have that then um, in a virtual world can influence the extent to which you're able to get work done efficiently and effectively. And so from a managerial perspective or in terms of leadership, I think it's a real appreciation of those broad uh, those broad categories and the varying complexity of work and each person's individual situation and a real recognition that a lot of the leaders in organisations that are calling the shots around this stuff at this point in time are people who have relatively low levels of complexity. They have it pretty good. You go on a, on a Zoom or a Teams or a Hangouts call and they have the nice backgrounds full of, you know, stocked books and this, that and the other, whereas then you have someone else who's turning off their camera because they don't feel comfortable sharing their background. And so I think just a real appreciation of the human element within all of this is really what's critical when it comes to leading in this new world of work. 
Yeah, and I think uh, one of the uh, real, really tough issues for this is uh, what it means for people who are uh, a little bit different, uh, square pegs and round, round holes. Uh, you know, the general view has been that uh, the pandemic has been uh, a boon for introverts uh, who suddenly get to uh, experience that space that they feel they need in order to be productive. Uh, but if we don't manage well, uh, then there'll be a, a demand for people to uh, to to behave similarly, to uh, uh, to to be uh, akin to the others who are around them. Uh, good management is able to draw out the best of uh, diverse groups, uh, but the strength that we get out of diversity uh, isn't isn't automatic. Uh, you know, it comes from getting that creative tension of bringing different people into the room, whether that's differences in uh, gender or uh, ethnic background background, sexual orientation, or just work experiences. Uh, getting the, the benefits of diversity uh, depends on creating those slightly uncomfortable spaces within teams in which people can rub ideas up against one, one, one another and, uh, and produce something fresh and exciting. Uh, and I think that's we've gotten used to how we do that uh, when we've got propinquity. I'm not sure we've, we've quite nailed how we do that in a more remote environment. Now, Karis, we've talked a lot about the challenges of working from home and the challenges of managing people when working from home. But uh, another aspect of the story that's come up through COVID-19 is the challenge of presenteeism, where employees are coming to work despite being sick. And that's obviously a real risk in workplaces at the moment. Going forward with more restrictions being wound back, how can businesses manage that kind of thing? Well, the causes of presenteeism are usually multifaceted. I mean, presenteeism itself is showing up for work while you're sick. But at the same time, some people show up for work, but they're also distracted by, you know, online shopping and all. So all these are sort of considered under the broad term of presenteeism. Um, in terms of uh, presenteeism in the remote working setting, I mean, just based on sort of a... Uh, what I've went through and what uh, I've read about. I think the real presenteeism for remote working was that a lot of people were forced to actually go for certain meetings where they realized that, you know, they didn't have to be there because, you know, sometimes they send out, you know, whole departmental sort of meetings and they are there and then, you know, their cameras and maybe their mics are all on mute, but they're doing something else. And that is, to me, in the remote working setting, it's a form of presenteeism as well. Um, I guess going forward, we might see a hybrid sort of setting where people, some of some of the people will prefer to go back to the office or some people uh, might still prefer uh, to work from home. And I think in that sort of hybrid arrangement, um, I think it's important to first determine whether some people are necessary in certain meetings or why if they're, if, if they're core team members, then they should be involved in the meeting. But if they're not, then you know, don't invite them. And at the same time, in terms of um, showing up for work, um, when you're sick going forward, I think this pandemic itself is actually a good wake-up call that you don't have to turn up. And a lot of times you can actually work from home um, even, you know, without necessarily turning up for work and we're just as productive. Um, so these are just my two cents, really. So, Karis, I'm not sure if the quip around online shopping during meetings was targeted at me because I know I did confess to you that I did have an experience with that, but I do have an answer. So a couple of things on this one. Going back to your original question, Martin, I think that um, 
particularly with vulnerable workers and those that don't have sufficient regulations, there absolutely is this challenge. Um, so, for example, rideshare drivers who were driving cars when they were potentially unwell, but they don't actually have sick leave or other entitlements and they can't afford not to work for their families. And so there's a real piece in there around social protections from a policy perspective. Um, but the flip side that I would have around presenteeism is that there are some positive bits about it. So one study actually found that 46% of females has said that their confidence in their ability to achieve has actually improved as a result of going into remote working because they no longer feel this degree of presenteeism that was otherwise felt when they were in the office. So it's almost like everyone's now on a level playing field that they're working from home and it's increasing female uh, participation, but more so um, confidence in their, their work as well. So yeah, just an interesting nuance on, on the presenteeism piece. But one of the aspects of this, I think, Martin, is is that uh, although we've got people using their time perhaps more efficiently by being at home, uh, the duration of meetings seems to have blown out. Uh, I remember going along to a, a tech startup that had uh, one meeting a week. It happened on Monday morning, uh, and everyone stood up, uh, and they said, uh, it's, it's remarkable how, uh, how much you reduce the duration of the meeting uh, when everyone's standing in a circle rather than sitting down in a room. Uh, we don't, we've, we've sort of gone to the reverse of that, and there is is a, a languor about Zoom meetings that I think can make them uh, much longer than they need to be. Uh, if you've got uh, people then sort of responding by uh, by I don't know practicing their guitar while they're uh, while the meeting is on, uh, then you don't have uh, you've, you've got everyone sort of tuning in with twenty percent of their energy for five times the duration that the meeting needs to go to. Uh, that's massively inefficient. I suspect you were talking about me there, Andrew, but that's fine. I'll take I'll take that on the chin. That's what we've that's what we've devolved into. Yeah. I think you should tell that story, Martin, if you're comfortable. <laughs> so the story is that I I have to attend a lot of committee meetings in my work here at ANU. Some of these are some of these are quite long, so I have gotten into the habit of turning off my video. Uh, and doing and practicing my guitar whilst these committee meetings are happening. I'd like to think, Andrew, that I'm still paying attention. I'm still focused. I'm still contributing when I need to. But it's just got a nice musical accompaniment. A and you can play Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> so, Andrew, let's... For the listening, he is very productive. He's always alert. Presenteeism is not an issue. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate the endorsement there, Ben. Andrew, let's stay with you. I mean, lots of people, as we've talked about, are rightly excited by the prospect of greater flexibility in the wake of the pandemic. But as we've also talked a little about already, the opportunities aren't equal for everyone. To effectively work from home, you need access to the right technology. You need good broadband. If you've got young children, you might need either the family support to look after them or the means to pay for childcare. And all of these can pose challenges for people on lower wages, single parents, for example. If we're not careful, we've already got a great deal of inequality in society. If we're not careful, do we risk further exacerbating the gap between the haves and the have-nots with the kind of changes that we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the IMF's done some modelling looking at the impact of past pandemics and noted that pandemics uh, tend to increase inequality. Uh, and that's true of, uh, of down to economic downturns more broadly. Uh, part of the response to that is that we need good fiscal responses that keep people in work to the greatest extent possible because unemployment tends to rise twice as fast as it falls. Um, we, all, we need educational in investment in order to ensure that if people aren't able to earn, 
then at least they can learn uh, and that keeps them more productive in the future. Uh, but it's also going to change uh, a whole lot of aspects uh, geographically. Uh, so the uh, shift towards cities has been uh, inexorable for the, the past couple of centuries and that may pause for a while. There may be regional towns that will do better out of this. Uh, that's probably useful in terms of the uh, the housing stock. Uh, we can make better use of the housing stock we've got rather than doing what we've we done for most of the, uh, the, the recent decades, uh, which is to build more and more in the centre of cities uh, and have more and more disused homes in regions. Uh, and then there'll be uh, places that will uh, take advantage of unusual opportunities. So uh, Barbados has just offered a thing called the Welcome Stamp, uh, which is a visa that allows people to uh, do remote work in Barbados uh, for up to a year. Uh, and uh, there'll be towns that'll do, so- do something similar, uh, encouraging people to move there uh, based on, uh, on high-quality broadband. Uh, a friend of mine's just taken a job with one state government with the agreement that she will work in an entirely different state. Uh, I can't imagine that ha- that happening last year, but uh, that'll be normal for many people. Next week, if the podcast is coming to you from Barbados, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure it's viable for a member of parliament. <laughs> so, Andrew, the federal government recently released its budget. Many people said that it was the most important in the lifetimes of many Australians. Was there anything in there? Was there enough in there for the budget to address some of the inequalities that you've just been talking about? Uh, let me turn down my partisanship as far as I can uh, t- can, can take it for the uh, purpose of answering this question, Martin. Uh, my main critique of the budget as an economist is that we saw a massive human capital shock uh, to health and education, uh, and the government's response was largely a physical capital response, uh, infrastructure and incentives for firms to engage in greater automation. Uh, I'm a fan of automation but I think there's a risk that if you have uh, if you increase technology without boosting education then all you end up doing is, exac- is exacerbating inequalities uh, and indeed much of that automation can be job destroying automation rather than job creating automation and so I didn't feel as though the policy response was thought through in terms of the 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 way in which we're thinking it through right now with the four of us uh, as to how the economy is going to be fundamentally different in the decades to come uh, I thought it was a it was a, a, crisis, a crisis response grounded in the sorts of things that we might typically do for a, a standard recession rather than thinking about how this one is really quite different and how the world is is forever changed as a result of COVID-19. Ben, you, you work for PwC, which obviously does a lot of work with businesses. Do you get a sense that businesses think that government have kind of got their back on this stuff and are on the right track in terms of supporting them? I think that, I mean, if I look at the budget in and of itself, and if we start there and and then kind of work our way to that question, I think that there were some real provisions to try and support um, the labour market uplift and employment more broadly, which naturally then has flow-on benefits to businesses and and the commercial space. Um, There was a lot of criticism around why the focus on youth, and obviously it can drive a disproportionate impact on older workers because there were a lot of those policies and programs that were targeted around uh, youth upskilling and youth employment. But for me, history tells us that they're the most impacted in recessions. And so as far as vulnerable cohorts go, I was really pleased to see a bit of a focus on that. I was pleased to see that 
um, we're investing in industries with lower barriers to entry from a skills perspective, notwithstanding what um, Andrew was saying around um, a bit of an oversight around health and education. Um, but in terms of what more could be done, and particularly as it could support business, I don't think there was enough in the budget when it came to, to women and female participation in the workforce. Um, and naturally, a lot of organisations have for some time been putting gender parity at the heart of a lot of their strategies around talent attraction. Um, and, you know, they've been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus um, recession. Um, they're going to be the last to recover as well because females traditionally have higher representation in arts, hospitality, retail, and a lot of those that will be the last to recover um, in terms of employment. So um, I think that from a, a government perspective around from and in terms of policy, I would focus a little bit more around that, um, which would naturally then have those follow-on impacts for, for business. Well, we are going to have to draw this discussion to a close in a minute. But before we do, I'd like to kind of pick up on what Ben said there. He's obviously put forward a, a good recommendation on what policymakers should be thinking about in this space. So perhaps uh, if I can turn to Karis and to Andrew and get from you uh, one recommended recommendation from each of you on how policymakers could could support businesses and workers in adjusting to, adjusting to the new work environment uh, that we've talked about that's been shaped by the COVID-19 crisis. Perhaps, Karis, if I can start with you. Well, I mean, for me, I would hope to see more legislation around, you know, work hours, what's face time. Even though in the past we already have um, legislation uh, around fair, uh, flexible working, um, what I see is that a lot of um, employers are actually going for, you know, touch points at the start and at the end of the week, but throughout the week, it's just autonomous. So like a trust-based working hours. I actually want to see that being implemented in more workplace and also at the same time, more legislation around uh, this full implementation of trust-based working hours um, in organisations. And Andrew, one policy recommendation from you on how to tackle some of these issues that we've talked about today. I've been banging on about education, Martin, and that'd be my uh, my solution. I think we need to open up university places, particularly at a time when overseas students aren't coming. Uh, why not be ensuring that every young person with the smarts to go to university has a place they're waiting for them? I'm really worried about the impact of the school shutdown on disadvantaged kids. Uh, we've seen a huge gulf opening up between advantaged and disadvantaged children, who we know even at the start of the year uh, were three years behind their more advantaged peers. Uh, the great Patton Institute suggested uh, intensive small group tutoring for a million disadvantaged Australian uh, teens. Uh, that makes total sense to me. I understand Victoria is pursuing a program of this kind, uh, but there's no reason why we oughtn't be doing it nationally. Uh, it also, by the way, uh, helps to provide employment for a female-dominated workforce, uh, new teachers, retired teachers. We've got the, uh, the talented people out there who can deliver this education, and the Grattan Institute says for every dollar you put in, it's going to pay back $3 down the line in higher earnings. Well, this has been a great discussion, but we do have to draw it to a close. So thank you so much for your insights and your expertise. Andrew Lee, Karis Chan and Ben Hamer. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thanks, Martin.
Well, big thanks once again to Andrew Karras and Ben. That was a terrific discussion and very illuminating, I think. But listeners, we want to know what you thought of today's discussion. What do you think the world of work might look like coming out of the COVID-19 crisis? Let us know. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are, Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. Or you can send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net or if you want to get in touch directly with the pod team, uh, our other listeners, and even some of our guests, you should join us on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook, and you will find us there. We're looking forward to welcoming you. And the best way to ensure your future supply of Policy Forum Pod episodes is to subscribe to us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, cheerio from me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.